años de 1844 al entrar, se concede a las mujeres el derecho de votar. Welcome to New Mexico and the Vote. I'm Megan Kamrick. This song is the first part of El Corrido de la Votación, the Ballad of the Vote. The composer is unknown, but it seems to be a woman's point of view in an art form often dominated by men, the corrido. It offers a combination of melancholy and satire at a time when gender roles were changing here and around the country. We'll delve into the corrido and its significance in greater detail a little later in the podcast. We'll also let you hear a lot more of this rare and unique song as we delve further into the history of women's suffrage in the land of enchantment. New Mexico and the Vote is a companion production to the American Experience documentary The Vote on PBS, which is airing 100 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution that gave women the right to vote in the United States. The Vote airs on New Mexico PBS July 6th and 7th at 8 p.m. It's also available to stream at nmpbs.org. In the first episode, we explored the history of suffrage in the West, including its links to colonization and white supremacy, and how New Mexico's trajectory was quite different. On this episode, we'll pick up the thread after the 1910 Constitutional Convention ahead of statehood in 1912. It gave women limited suffrage by allowing them to vote in school elections. Historian Kathleen Cahill is associate professor at Penn State University and author of the forthcoming book, Recasting the Vote, Women of Color Transform the Suffrage Movement. She was previously at the University of New Mexico. She says Anglo and Hispanic activists had pushed for full suffrage, but were unsuccessful. Ultimately, that constitutional convention is only willing to go so far. They, they allow women to have um, school suffrage, but not full suffrage. And some of this is about uh, both Anglo and Hispanic men's ideas of women's kind of natural place, right? They're naturally maternal. They should work with children. Some of it's about comp- political compromise. New Mexico's suffrage movement had begun ramping up in the 1890s with the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the formation of women's clubs around the state, especially the New Mexico Federation of Women's Clubs. Some of their members played key roles in suffrage, including Julia Brown Asplund, who came to the state to direct the opening of the University of New Mexico Library. Most of the members of the women's clubs were Anglo. For a number of the Hispanic suffragists, some of the things that they really valued were not necessarily valued by um, Anglo suffragists. So in particular, uh, many of them were advocates of of bilingualism and of the Spanish language. Aurora Lucero gives a big speech as the Constitutional Convention is debating called, translated as in, in defense of the Spanish language. So part of her suffrage advocacy is this also needs to be in Spanish because Spanish is an important language. It's a language in New Mexico. We can't reach all of the women of the state without speaking in Spanish. And also it's important, it's part of our contribution to the United States, right? It's actually quite patriotic. So for many of them, again, Lucero um, and Nino Otero Warren, and I would say probably even Lola Armijo, that's a really important part of their activism. It can't be separated out. Lola Chavez de Armijo was appointed state librarian in 1909 by territorial Governor George Curry. When Governor William C. McDonald tried to replace her in 1912, arguing as a woman she was unqualified, Armijo sued. The New Mexico Supreme Court ruled in her favor, and legislation followed that allowed women to hold appointed office. 
Aurora Lucero was a bilingual educator from Las Vegas, and her father, Antonio, was New Mexico's first secretary of state. She was also a gifted orator. Lucero's cousin, Nina Otero Warren, had been educated in Albuquerque and then Maryville College of the Sacred Heart in St. Louis. After her father's murder in a dispute over his land grant by Anglo settlers, her mother remarried Alfred Maurice Berger. The family moved to Santa Fe when Nina was 16 after her mother's cousin was appointed territorial governor in 1897. After a short-lived marriage in 1908, Nina returned to Santa Fe, declared herself a widow, and kept her ex-husband's last name, and threw herself into social and political life. Regardless of differences between Hispanic and Anglo suffragists, they realized that the new state constitution made any further progress on the women's vote pretty much impossible. Any changes required the votes of two-thirds of legislators, followed by three-fourths voter approval in each county. Carrie Chapman Catt, who really led the biggest suffrage organization in the country, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, had decided that the way to get suffrage done was to get it through the states. Silvia Ramos-Cruz is a retired doctor who has studied the history of New Mexico's suffrage movement. She says Katz's organization realized this strategy would not work here. But Alice Paul's Congressional Union, which later became the National Women's Party, broke from CAT in 1913. It was focused on getting a national amendment to the Constitution, and it sent organizers to New Mexico in 1914. The Congressional Union organizers began tapping into women's clubs for recruits, but they realized suffrage would never succeed in New Mexico without Hispanic women. Because not only do they comprise a large part of the population, so do their relatives. And not only that, a lot of their relatives are in the legislature. So we need them. Lucero wrote and helped distribute Spanish-language pamphlets which focused on how women receiving suffrage would help with the well-being of children. Because, of course, women's groups, whenever they talked about suffrage, always brought it around to children and the family. This is what was called maternalistic politics, you know. They always talked about, you know, infant and maternal health, uh, children and family welfare, public schools. So she uh, wrote a speech that's very celebrated at the time, uh, Aurora Lucero did, called El Porvenir de los Niños, the, the Future of Children. And she stressed matters pertaining to the health and well-being of children as reasons for uh, women to have the vote. Large Amer Spanish-American audiences responded favorably, and many joined the campaign. Ya se juntan las mujeres, se ponen a platicar. Comadrita de mi vida, la elección se va a probar. Ya se juntan las mujeres, hacen un club de señoras. Aurora Lucero was one of four women selected to speak as part of a public march on October 21, 1915, in Santa Fe with about 150 women. It's a striking event not only because it was held here and not in a big eastern city, but also because it includes Anglo and Hispanic women. Kathleen Cahill says this moment is one of many suffrage marches across the country. And those are, those actually do have women of color in them, but particularly the African-American women's participation is 
contested, particularly in the 1913 National Parade. White leaders are worried that having African-American women visibly in the parade will result in white supremacists in the South not supporting the movement. You see a different thing in this parade in Santa Fe. Not only is it in a really different space than we usually imagine these suffrage parades, um, high desert, adobe buildings, plazas, um, and here is this pretty large parade, um, 150 women, the population's about 9,000, so it's substantial. And it involves both Anglo and Hispanic women. Among the women were national organizers who came to appeal to Senator Thomas Catron to support the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Catron was key because he was Senate chair of the Women's Suffrage Committee, despite the fact that he was adamantly against suffrage. The march coincided with the visit of Emma St. Clair Thompson from the Congressional Union, who recruited Aurora Lucero to speak to Catron. Sylvia Ramos-Cruz says Lucero stated that she was there to give the political point of view of Spanish-American women. I speak for the Spanish-American women who, while conservative, want the best possible laws when their home life is the question at issue. I represent the daughters of the conquistadores who first reclaimed this country from the wilderness and all the other women of the state. I mentioned earlier that these were women of their time, right? There was no recognition here that this land belonged to all of us. So she started off making that point. And then Julia Brown Aspen talked about the fact that many women in the state pay taxes. They were property owners. They, you know, they were taxed as property owners and landowners. And how unjust that they were being taxed, taxation without representation, which is a cry that goes back, you know, to the American Revolution. Senator Catron remained unmoved. Aspland later called his comments medieval. The senator explained the Bible gave men dominion over women. And then he gives a speech himself that basically tells them why they're wrong, why women shouldn't have suffrage, how it's so bad for them, and, you know, is just kind of a jerk about it. But they know that they have to sort of be politic, right? He's one of the state senators, so uh, they have to at least try. But I think that parade is, is such a really marvelous um, demonstration of how suffrage advocacy is happening everywhere in the United States. In the long account of the march and the exchange between the women and Catron in the Santa Fe, New Mexican, it notes an argument made by Thompson, the out-of-state organizer visiting from the Congressional Union. Thompson was originally from North Carolina, and while she did see the importance of recruiting Hispanic women to the cause, she had other racist tendencies. She tried to persuade Catron that suffrage for women would solve the quote-unquote Negro problem because white men and women outnumbered black citizens in the South. As the PBS documentary The Vote shows, such racial divisions were an ugly part of the suffrage movement. The number of African Americans in New Mexico in the early 20th century was small and included the community of blackdom in the Southeast, founded in 1901. Sylvia Ramos-Cruz says there's some evidence that they also had women's clubs, and those may have also focused on suffrage there was a, a woman named Lula Black. So Lula Black uh, was uh, actually an educator who had moved here from uh, California. And she and eight matrons decided to form a club to better prepare themselves for their duties as mothers and social leaders of their community. 
and this was in 1914. Among their other agenda items were suffrage, prohibition, and lynchings. Sometimes the African-American organizations did come together with the white women's clubs to, to further a specific cause, um, but they were all uh, pretty separate. So in that respect, I think we would have gotten farther had all women from all areas, uh, you know, been included. Senator Katrin no doubt presented a double threat to Hispanic suffragists as a member of the infamous group of land speculators known as the Santa Fe Ring. He used his knowledge of Spanish land grants to acquire more than three million acres over the decades, making him the biggest landowner in the state. In a lengthy article on suffrage he submitted to the Senate, Katrin laid out all kinds of arguments against giving women the vote, including the disruption of the domestic sphere for men. The more women go out into the rough world to do men's work, the greater the loss to the home, and the more she loses her delicate charm and sympathy, which is distinctly feminine. And, in the language of the late Senator Vest of Missouri, what man would care to go home after the struggle and worry of the day in the business world and fall into the arms of a constitutional lawyer or a politician for rest, consolation, and comfort? Luckily for the suffragists, he lost the Republican nomination in 1916 to Frank Hubble. Hubble, in turn, lost in the general election to Democrat Andreas A. Jones, who became chair of the Senate Committee on Woman Suffrage. Jones would prove instrumental to moving the Susan B. Anthony Amendment forward. Sylvia Ramos-Cruz says Jones, unlike Katrin, was sympathetic to the suffrage cause. Not only was sympathetic, he actually visited suffragists who had been jailed in Washington and other places uh, for espousing the cause and being militant, and also uh, showed quite a deal of compassion for the suffragists who were uh, undergoing hunger strikes and were being fed forcefully. If we had not had men who were sympathetic to the cause or who were dragged to vote yes for many different reasons, we wouldn't have the vote because the only ones who could vote at that time were the men. Jones scheduled two votes in 1918 and 1919, both failing to win two-thirds majority. Finally, on June 4th, 1919, however, the Senate passed the amendment by a vote of 56 to 25. Meredith Machen is past president of the League of Women Voters of New Mexico. He is absolutely key because he is the one who finally gets it out of committee and he's persuasive. I mean, the fact that it had just lost by one vote before they adjourned at the end of February 1919 means that he had done an incredible job in the Senate after Katrin had poisoned the Senate against women's suffrage. He had changed hearts and minds. By 1916, New Mexico had its own branch of the National Women's Party and elected Nina Otero Warren as vice chair. When the first chair stepped down, Alice Paul asked Otero Warren to step up, and she began coordinating suffrage efforts around the state. Paul's group was considered more militant than Carrie Chapman Katz, the National American Women's Suffrage Association. The two groups split on philosophy and strategy, especially during World War I, which Paul opposed while Kat pledged support for the U.S. efforts. Sylvia Ramos-Cruz says the National Women's Party did not resort to violence, but they continued to picket the White House during the war. They had a banner that actually uh, called the president Kaiser Wilson. And that enraged some men who started tearing the banners and people got injured. 
that was a bad thing, but it did bring attention to the cause. Those tensions existed in the New Mexico suffragists as well. Deanne Lindsay, wife of Governor Washington Ellsworth Lindsay, led the state chapter of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Julia Brown Asplund was a leader with the National Women's Party and hosted one of the Washington activists. In 1917, when there was that eruption in front of the White House with the pickets uh, having their banners torn and uh, then being carted to jail, uh, the Santa Fe New Mexican carried a story uh, on the same page. On one side was Mrs. Asplund, uh, and the suffragists get to have the the leader of this uh, militant kind of event come to, to Santa Fe and speak and celebrate them and, and, you know, give them a lot of space. And on the other part of the page was Mrs. Deanne Lindsay, who uh, wrote a letter to the president uh, decrying this kind of behavior, saying that people in New Mexico do not approve of these kind of tactics. Meredith Machen with the League of Women Voters says despite these rifts, the movement needed everyone. We needed both, both types of women. We needed the militant ones who were absolutely adamant and would they were jailed for their views. They were not going to give up. And we also needed the um, more methodical, respectful w- women who worked through the typical legislative processes. World War I actually provided leverage for suffragists to argue for the national amendment. In New Mexico, as in many places, women were a huge part of the war effort, 500 women volunteered for the Women's Land Army here to cultivate the fields. So Silvia Ramos-Cruz says women at the national level appealed to President Woodrow Wilson once more to help push through the 19th Amendment. That included a suffragist from New Mexico, Cora Armstrong Kellum, who was legislative chair in the state for the National Women's Party. In 1918, she traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with Wilson as a delegate from the Women's Committee on the Council of National Defense. And up to this time, President Wilson had said, yes, he favored it and all of that, but nothing much had been done. And so she met with President and Mrs. Wilson in May of 1918. And she said, Mr. President, we women of the West are growing very restless indeed, waiting for the long delayed passage of the federal suffrage amendment. Women in New Mexico and other states are eagerly awaiting for action on this measure in the Senate. Won't you help us? And the president said, I will. I will do all I can. Ya se juntan las mujeres, se ponen a platicar. Ya abandonan sus quehaceres, ellas se van a votar. Amigas que me reflejan todos los que están casados y ahora ni se quejan y al gobierno de los estados. Congress finally passed the 19th Amendment in June 1919 and sent it out to the states for ratification. Efforts ramped up in New Mexico, and late that year, Carrie Chapman Catt with the National American Women's Suffrage Association returned to the state. This came after the legislative session that year in New Mexico, where Governor Octaviano Ambrosio Larazolo had urged members to approve a woman's suffrage amendment to the state constitution. They failed to do so, however, and he rebuked them and vowed to call a special session. When Congress passed the amendment, Kathleen Cahill says Nino Otero Warren asked him to make good on his pledge. 
in the legislative session in 1920, um, she and the other suffragists have been doing a lot of lobbying. And it seems like it's going to all go well, but at the last minute, some members of the party sort of bolt. Historian Joan Jensen of New Mexico State University notes that suffrage opponents were trying to use a tactic they'd used before by getting lawmakers to introduce a resolution to substitute a state referendum measure for the resolution ratifying the 19th Amendment. But Alice Paul warned New Mexico suffrage supporters of the effort. She had gotten wind of a secret meeting in Washington where anti-suffrage forces tried to line up Hispanic opposition to the amendment. This would have allowed Anglo politicians to lay the blame for the amendment failure on Hispanic men, according to Jensen. Cahill says by 1920, Otero Warren had given up her spot in the National Women's Party and was a member of the new Women's Caucus in the Republican Party state delegation. And so she's able to be with the party members in their meetings. And she really is the one who has to kind of try to say, you promised and this is going to happen and you need to make it happen. So she's down there lobbying and cajoling and really pulling those members back into the fold. So New Mexico does ratify it, but it's sort of touch and go there for a minute. And it's really Nina Otero Warren using her political connections and all of her you know, real political skill to uh, make sure that it goes through. On February 19th, 1920, the day after the Senate ratified the amendment, Representative Dan Padilla withdrew his proposal for a state referendum. The House followed the Senate and ratified, making New Mexico the 32nd state to ratify the 19th Amendment. And so without New Mexico, you know, the 19th Amendment very well could not have been ratified because each state that ratified it was so important. All 36 of those states were really hard won. You know, the suffragists were incredibly politically skilled and they expended so much energy. You know, this fight was decades long. So Nino Tara Warren and the other Hispanic suffragists really had to convince politicians who represented um, Spanish-speaking New Mexicans that this was a good thing for their communities, too. Cahill says following ratification, both parties reach out to this new large voting bloc and nominate women to run for office. In 1922, the Republicans nominate Nina Otero Warren to run for Congress. She's one of four women who are running across the country that year, and she's, of course, the only Hispana, and uh, she does not win. The Democrats actually have a very good year that year, but the fact that she ran is really something, and she gets national press for this. Also in 1922, the Democrats nominated two women for state office, including Soledad Chavez de Chacon. She was related to Dennis Chavez, who would go on to become the first Hispanic elected to a full term in the U.S. Senate. And so the way they kind of frame it is she's not at that meeting. He and I think um, her brother maybe come to the house and tell her, oh, you've been nominated. And she says, oh, I, you know, I was baking bread or making a cake or something. And I was so surprised. And I said, well, I'll have to ask my husband um, if I can accept this nomination, which he says yes, and she does. And it's interesting to me because she's the daughter of a powerful politician. She's not that naive. Um, and I think they tell this story very much to kind of make people feel better about voting for a woman, right? That she doesn't have political ambition. This was sort of asked of her, and so she did it. At that time, we're a little unsure, would politics, they talked about, would politics de-sex women? 
And so women are having to navigate that as they begin to move into this political sphere. And she's the first woman in the country to win that position. And she's the first Hispanic woman um, to, to win that position, right? Or really um, any kind of state elected office. Um, so in New Mexico, these firsts are really important. And I don't think it is a coincidence, right? That then New Mexico later um, in the 21st century has the first Republican and Democratic Hispanic women to serve as governors. Um, and also the first native woman or one of the first two to serve in Congress, right? There's a long tradition of particularly Hispanas serving in office in New Mexico that starts right then. Reciban sus oficinas, secretarias, juez de paz. Cambien sus candidatas y suspiran para demás. Y acaso van a la guerra formadas en batallón. Para que quieren maderita que de gancho de pantalón. Coming from um, the Spanish word correr, which is uh, to run, corridos are and have been a form of transmitting news between people, events, conflict. It kind of reminds me of like a form of social media. Carmela Scorcia Pacheco is a doctoral student in border studies with the Spanish and Portuguese department at the University of Arizona. She wrote an article for the Smithsonian Folklife magazine about this corrido. She believes the ballad was composed by a woman, and it's part of a tradition of voicing struggles. The lyrics are extolling women to take up office and become candidates, but then it becomes kind of satirical, right? Right, it is. In what way? Talk, talk about what they're saying. <laughs> so we have women are now driving trains. Um, women are holding offices. We also have men who are, are governing the kitchen. I mean, this is poking a little fun at, at the situation, right? And playing, playing around with gender roles. Do you think it, it's mourning the loss of, uh, the potential loss of culture with the annexation by America of this territory and the moving towards a more dominant Anglo culture and sort of saying women, they had these rights, some of these rights, and they had to regain them again. And now we're facing all this cultural and social change in part because of that. Yes, I like that. I think that's a great point. There were lots of changes going on and... We can see it to this day how a lot of resistance was built towards these changes, to cultural changes, changes in language, changes in rights, you know, and it creates room for evolving and, and all of that, but it may be a form of resistance as well. Resistance and also kind of mourning. Maybe not all these changes were what they actually wanted, and that's the artful way of, of putting it together. Find links to Pacheco's article, which has the corrido recording and the lyrics with translation at New Mexico and the Vote on nmpbs.org. The version we heard was sung by Quirina Cordova de Medina from the collection Nuevo México Hasta Cuando, an anthology of New Mexico ballads produced by the Smithsonian. We'll go out on a more recent arrangement of La Votación by Enrique La Madrid and performed by Jordan Wax of Lone Piñon and Lara Manzanares. 
You can also find this at the website. Despite the victory for women in New Mexico and across the nation, there was still one group left out of the 19th Amendment, Native Americans. We'll pick up that story in the next episode of New Mexico and the Vote. Find New Mexico and the Vote wherever you get your podcasts and head over to nmpbs.org for information on the American Experience documentary, The Vote. It airs July 6th and 7th and is also available for streaming. Major funding for American Experience provided by Liberty Mutual Insurance, Consumer Cellular, and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Major funding for The Vote provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Additional funding for The Vote provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, investing in our common future, and by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation Fund. Additional funding for American Experience provided by the Robert David Lyon Gardner Foundation, the Documentary Investment Group, and by Public television viewers. American Experience is produced for PBS by WGBH Boston. Ya se